Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 506 with my guest, Doeen Richards. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist, not a doctor's office. I barely graduated college. Graduated with a theater degree, so that should that should tell you how many grains of salt you should take what I have to say. But you know what? I have battled, uh, battled? I have battled uh, mental and emotional demons for most of my life, so maybe that gives me a little bit of credibility. Way to start the show off by just shitting on yourself. That's my yoga move. I can shit on myself while I'm talking. Uh, I want to read a love. We have we have some, a great interview with uh, Doeen Richards, uh, who um, just brings up some... some... <sighs> Shut up. Just shut up. You're 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 advertising a show people are about to listen to. Just let them listen to it. I think you're being a little hard on yourself. I don't. See what I wake up listening to every morning. I want to read a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with with Doeen and. Uh, one of the things I did want to say is there are a lot of people out there uh, who listen who feel like they can never get enough information about borderline personality disorder, and they feel very alone and struggling with what they what they have, or maybe they have a loved one who has it, and they're trying to understand more about it. And we have two beautiful, uh, dark, um, but beautiful surveys filled out by uh, women who experience borderline personality disorder and um, their surveys are very uh, they go very deep 
Let's let's just put it that way. Um, that will be after the interview with Doeen. Uh, but before that, I want to read this is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves Clover. And they write, I love when my orchestra director asks me to instruct the younger cellists. It makes me feel important and like I'm doing something right. I love when another girl flirts with me. It makes, so, makes me so happy that she sensed that I'm queer. I love when I'm in the middle of a monologue in theater and I see the faces of my classmates. I love when I wake up on a summer day and realize that I don't have to get up for school. That is such a great one. I think I probably experienced that one about school probably a full 10 years after I got out of school. So probably until I was almost 30, I would still feel joy sometimes when I would wake up and realize I don't ever have to go to school again. I don't know why I whisper it. And I do love that moment when you're performing and you look out and you see people's faces. There there were times when I would do stand-up and this kind of interesting thing happens when you're, when you're performing uh, where half your brain is reciting what it is that you're doing and another half of your brain is stepping outside yourself and taking everything in and it's this to me it's it's one of the highest levels of performance that my brain ever ever achieves and I would sometimes have these moments when I would be having a good stand-up show where half of my brain would be doing my act and the other half would be looking at the faces around the room and thinking, oh, wow, that person is really enjoying themselves or, oh, that person, uh, I'm not their cup of tea. But it always, um, when I would see the faces of somebody that was clearly excited that they had come out and I wasn't disappointing them, that's how low my bar was. Am I not disappointing them? It it was such a such a good feeling. So I very much relate to, to that one, that literally feeling seen and and heard i think we all want that um this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself never taking on less than i can handle and she writes i love when i'm out on a run and i pass a chalk hopscotch drawing on the sidewalk uh as a childless adult when can i ever enjoy a nice hopscotch without looking like i've lost my senses but since I'm on a run, I can justify it as extra exercise with the wishful thinking that any possible onlookers will assume the same. But in reality, I'm reliving a happy childhood memory in real time and my tired old body that didn't really want to go on a run in the first place feels young again. Love it. Love it. It sounds like such a cliche, but those moments when we can be childlike, again, are so important, uh, you know, for for our mental mental health I think that's why I still when I, I play hockey three times a week and I still feel as excited lacing my skates up as I did when I was eight years old and it's kind of a running joke among the guys I play hockey with that I will walk in with my bag people will be half dressed and I will walk past them fully dressed out onto the ice before they're even five minutes away from getting finished dressing and they're always like, how the fuck do you get dressed so fast? And it's because I'm excited. Because I can't wait to get out and do it. And I've been playing since I was eight years old. I'm, I'm so what's that, 49 years? One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp Online Therapy. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Um, 
If you've never tried online therapy, uh, I really recommend BetterHelp. You know, of course, they've been a longtime sponsor of this show, and I and I use them personally and have been extremely satisfied with them. But uh, some stuff you may not know uh, about it, you can start communicating in under 48 hours with uh, a counselor that they will assign to you. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's a professional counseling uh, session done securely online. There's a huge range of expertise available that might not be locally available in many areas if you were to do in-person therapy. Um, it's available worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely, thoughtful responses, and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit down in an uncomfortable waiting room as you do with traditional therapy. Uh, BetterHelp's committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. And I can vouch for that because uh, early on when I started having them as a uh, sponsor, I wanted to experience different counselors. So early on, I had one for a month, and then I said, okay, I'm going to try another one. And uh, and they were all good fits, but I wanted to be able to to speak about the quality of their therapy from experience. And so I've had, I think, maybe four different therapists, and they've all been all been great. Um, so go to their website, read their testimonials, visit betterhelp.com slash mental. That's betterhelp.com slash mental and join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And you guys get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know that came you came from this podcast. And then uh, one more survey before we get to the interview. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by uh, Jen, who writes about her anxiety, her social anxiety. My life has been so much better since I stopped caring about the opinions of others. Or rather, what I would have thought would be the opinion of others, but was really my own thoughts of what others' opinions of me would be if I were them. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with Dwayne Richards, who uh, is a podcaster, he's a speaker, uh, you write about ways to and uh, you also educate people on how to how to fight racism how to be an ally which is a topic i'm i'm really excited to talk about um because i know some people in the in the black community are kind of 
tired of talking to white people about race. I mean, my girlfriend is reading a, a book or just finished it called Why I'm No Longer Talking About Race. Um, but I'm glad, I'm glad we haven't worn you out yet. Um, <laughs> yet. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, about your upbringing. Um, you know, where were you raised? What was the emotional temperature of, uh, of your family life, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I was born and raised in a small Western Massachusetts town called Amherst, a very small liberal college town, but it was predominantly white. And I was one of the few black spots speckled throughout the town. So I didn't really understand a lot about racism. Like I never really had to deal with the overt version of it until um, I was nine when, however, that's when I first heard the N-word directed at me um, during a kickball game of all places. But still, that was more of an outlier because most of it was just, it was not as overt then I would see, hear stuff like, oh, yeah, you know, wow, you're so articulate and well-spoken. Oh, you don't act like the other ones. Oh, wow. If they could only all be like you, all these microaggressions, macroaggressions in regards to race. And, yeah, it was pretty nuts. It's funny. I couldn't see the patronizing form of racism until I was in my 20s. And began to see, oh, people on the left are also racist. They just, because they don't want to burn a cross, <laughs> doesn't mean that they're, that they're not contributing to. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I'd like to talk about is, is the racism on the left? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, really, I was, so I grew up in Western Massachusetts. I and then afterwards, I went to one of those elite private high schools um, called Loomis Chafee in Connecticut. So again, around a lot of whiteness and a lot of rich, elite white kids, even though I was neither rich, white, or elite. I was just, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just a guy, just you know, a black kid trying to you know, do, do his thing, trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents really. But I, I was there and a lot of it was, I've never really been in a place growing up where I was in the majority, where I was in predominantly black spaces. You know, I, my story is not a rags to riches or like a hood story. Like I didn't grow up in the hood. I didn't grow up in the inner city. I was a suburban kid, but mm. I I didn't understand that even though I talked or spoke well and got good grades and all that stuff, that I was still a threat just due to the color of my skin. I mean, I'm 6'2", 215, I'm athletically built. So just because of that, it just shows like, hey, this guy, I mean, I'm just known as a threat just by waking up or walking outside of my house. And 
that gets really exhausting trying to prove to people that, hey, I'm not here to hurt you. I'm not here to rob you. I don't want to kill you. I don't want to, I don't want to rape you. I just want to either walk my dog around the block or just go home to my family. I'm just, that kind of stuff, like guilty until proven innocent is pretty um, exhausting. You, you, you talked about being raised, not being raised in the hood. Uh, when you find yourself hanging out with people who, who were raised in the hood, uh, do you find yourself feeling like you don't fit in there? That's a great question. And if you asked me that maybe five years ago, I would say not as much. I wouldn't be able to fit in. But I think now the climate is so different. It's like people of all backgrounds, as far as blackness, are bonding together. It's like whether you grew up in the hood, grew up in the suburbs, grew up, it's like it's open season on black people in America. I mean, it has been, but really right now it is. So we are putting aside our differences and maybe our little discrepancies as far as our upbringings are concerned to be to band together and be like, hey, we need to look out for each other right now because it's just not, not pleasant right now in this world for us. Yeah, that sounds like an understatement. Not pleasant. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> this, not the, very unpleasant. The era of unpleasantness. That's what it's going to go down yes. in the history books as. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, unpleasant. I could probably have chosen a better word than that, but yeah, yeah. it's very unpleasant. What are to topics that you're passionate uh, talking about? I, f I feel like that would be uh, yeah. a better way to go than for for me to uh, ask you questions right now. Yeah, no, that's totally cool. One, you mentioned something earlier that I want to touch on as far as like the racism on the left, which people automatically think that racism is just relegated to white hoods and cross burnings and end bombs and confederate flags and all that stuff it's not that stuff is a cartoonish version that we see but the more prevalent version is what we see in america the systemic racism the microaggressions the just the whole like the the things that are where you're just not even paying attention to it is it's so embedded in your system that blacks are threats that you might be walking with your I can't count how many times I've just been walking down the street and like a white guy might be in front of me passing let's say a white woman and her kid and she does nothing but then as soon as I walk by she's clutching her kid tighter or she's clutching her purse tighter but it's, it's I make this joke about this and I think find this hilarious is that when people, white people clutch their kids, when black people walk by, it's like, man, where the hell have you seen black people snatching up kids? Like, <laughs> we don't, that's not, we, we don't do that. And also the whole, the whole thing, the, the stereotype of like, hey, black people don't want to take care of kids. We don't want, they don't take care of the kids. Okay, so we want to snatch up yours? <laughs> like, so which one is it? Like, if we don't take care of our kids, but we want to snatch up your kid. Like, yeah, you're out, you're out hunt, hunting for the burden of an additional child. 
Yeah, exactly. Like that's not a thing. Like that, we don't do that. Like that's not something that we do. But yeah, really, outside of that, my thing is, I created something called the Anti-Racism Fight Club, which came as the, the story behind that. The really quick story is, I was doing, I was asked to do a, a quick workshop around anti-racism, and the the Oh, it wasn't really a workshop, more of a talk. And I did it for way less than I would charge. But I was like, ah, screw it. I'll just do it. And then a lady who participated, nice white lady, she's like, hey, why don't you, you're so good at this. Why don't you create your own training, charge some money, and teach white people how to be better anti-racist? Because you have a way of engaging people that is effective. So I was like, hmm, I'll do it. And before you know it, it it's blown up in the two and a half months that I've done it. And I'm really feeling good. It's something that people are raving about. I've trained Fortune 500 companies. I've trained celebrities. I've trained all types of people across the globe on how to be better anti-racist. I have 15 plus years of training and development experience, decades of being experience being an anti-racist. And that combined with a nice way of going about this topic. I think a lot of times with anti-racism, it's either really academic or you're going to be talking down to people or you're going to be making people feel guilty. You're like, look, there's a way that you can make this effective, but you can make it fun. You can make it interesting and really relate to people and, and really hit them where they want to get that uncomfortable feeling which will help elicit behavioral change, but not uncomfortable to the way that they want to leave, uncomfortable to the way of like, whoa, I never thought of it that way. Right. And that's what I think is effective. Uh, well, let's let's do some of those. And, and maybe if you want to ask me uh, questions, I'm, I'm uh, game to uh, look like an idiot. <laughs> well, I, it's not even, I think one thing that people bring up is there's lots of different objections to like the mission of trying to be a better human. And one thing that I'm seeing a lot of white folks do is they say, well, Dr. King would, he would have, he wouldn't approve of what's going on right now with the black community. And I don't know. I find, well, I'll ask you, do you find that to be like that level of that, bringing that up, do you find that being a problem where white people are kind of co-opting some of Dr. King's teaching to help explain away their racism? Uh, I, I feel like the the first thing that, that we should keep in mind before we speak about race is that we don't know what it's like. Um, we can try. I think the, the most important thing is that we keep our minds open and to, to keep trying to learn and, uh, to avoid the pitfall of experiencing a moment of shame or looking bad. Um, that to me is the, is the most important, uh, thing because I, I agree. Yeah. I, I have moments today where I, I think the, um, 
ingrained part of my brain from media and, and or maybe I shouldn't blame it on anything else where, uh, you know, maybe I see uh, three black guys coming towards me and my initial instinct is, oh, this is dangerous. And, you know, it's a flash of a thought and I I feel bad for, for having that, but I think ultimately it's what I do with that that, that matters. Um, uh, if if somebody comes to the door selling something, for me today, it has less to do with with the color of their skin and more to do with whether or not they look sketchy. You know, whether or not you know are their are their shoes really dirty? Do they look like uh, you know they're they're really uh, you know they're sleeping under a bridge or something? So be it be it black or white. To me, I, I suppose I'm more. Uh, socioeconomically prejudiced, uh, or at least my radar is up. I, I, I certainly don't hold anything against somebody who, who is struggling financially, quite the, quite the opposite. But that is, is the thing that kind of gets my an, antennae. Is that the right word? Up? Antennae? I yeah, no, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I totally, I, I, I hear what you're saying there too. I mean, I think right now people, I, I understand that people will look at me as a threat. So I try to do my own part to diffuse that as best I can. I have, I just adopted a really cute puppy. He's four months old and super fluffy. And when I take him around the neighborhood, it's like, well, this big black dude can't be a threat if he has this big right. little puppy going on, this adorable puppy. And, you know, people will stop and look, oh my gosh, he's so cute. What's his name? What kind of puppy is he? Yeah. All stuff. So that is something. But I also realize that, that those conversations, people wouldn't stop to be like, Hey, how are you? Good to meet you. Like you're in the neighborhood. If I didn't have this dog, they I'm automatically a threat. So it's just, it's strange because it's like, I'm the same dude Mm -hmm. that I was without the dog. So, you know, or if I'm walking with my two daughters, you know, who are seven and nine, they're you know they're young they're adorable and people will stop oh your girls are cute no everything look at this good dad but again same dude without the girl but you know no one wants to engage me they automatically go to the whole thing i mentioned earlier about being guilty until proven innocent and that's Mm -hmm. that's exhausting it really is i i think one of the the uh racist impulses or or thoughts that that I have is when I see uh, a black guy with a pit bull, I think um, that that doesn't surprise me. But when I see a black guy with a chihuahua, my first thought is, oh, he's got a girlfriend and and he's walking this dog as a favor for her. And he's embarrassed to be walking this dog. And yeah, I, I hate to I hate to say it, but that's that's the the thought that goes through my mind. And as you yeah. hear as you hear that, what do you think and feel? I I mean I'm not shocked by that, but I also feel like if it was like a big buff 
white dude and you had the same scenario, you probably I would the think same the thing. same thing. I would think the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not really in that situation. It's not so much a black thing. I, I think to your point, though, when if we look at this and put it around the realm of fatherhood, you know, if you were to see a black man like pushing his little girl down the sidewalk, you know, maybe two years old or whatever, you may think like, oh, wow, that's you may you be more prone to want to give that person that black man praise for being an amazing dad than you would if you saw a white guy doing the same thing and what is and it's what, this cognitive dissonance yeah and what does that feel like for you when you get the person who thinks they're well-meaning but it feels patronizing to you what is that what does oh. that feel like oh it, it's sometimes it depends on the day to be honest sometimes like if i'm if I'm not in the mood to deal with it, I'm just like, oh, thank you, move on. But if it's like, hey, I got some time today, like I'll, I'll help educate this person. I just say, like, look, what, I mean, for example, there's a time when I was in a restaurant with my daughter, one of my daughters, and she was a baby, and I was feeding her some just whatever food we were having at the restaurant. White lady comes by and she's like, wow you you're just you are one of you're the most amazing dad ever i'm sitting here like why though because i mean because i'm feeding my child food like is that how low the bar is that giving my child sustenance to because she's hungry makes me on the mount rushmore of dads because if any white dad was doing that she would not have said that and i asked her i was like hey what do you think I'm doing? That's so amazing. And she's like, it's just the way that you're interacting with your daughter. You can tell that you love her. I'm like, yeah, but do you have children? Like, yeah. Well, don't you love your kids too? Like, yeah. Like, like I'm not, and I told her, like, look, I'm not trying to be argumentative. I'm just trying to have you understand that what I'm doing is not special. I'm just being a dad. I'm just doing what any man any parent should do who cares for their children. Right. So I think but, she got but it. But you're fresh out of jail. You're. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. I'm fresh out of jail. I got the crack, the crack pipe is hidden out of plain sight and all of that stuff. So, you know, there's, all the warrants are gone. So there's none of that. It's just it, what she's basically saying is what a woman did say to me when I was at Starbucks one day. She, a woman came to me and said, while I was pushing my daughter in a stroller, getting some Starbucks, she's like, hey, no offense, but it's not often that I see black men taking care of their kids, but I think it's so beautiful. And then she hit me with this. She's like, no matter what happens, I hope you stay involved in that little girl's life. Oh my she walked God. Away. Oh my yeah. God. And so I'm sitting here like, wait, what now? <laughs> like, I hope you stay involved in that little girl's life, she says, because I, you know, I'm going to be, you know, after a while, it's going to be drugs and hookers, so, or prison, so it's like, one of those things is going to happen, so, uh, you know, it's like, oh my good lord. It, it, it must feel like people look at you like a dangerous child, like a child who could hurt them. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
it, someone who can do something to them. There, I think part of what has made me popular, I think, in, at least in social media settings, is that there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that happens when they look at me and they see a big black dude and who's a loving dad and of girls. And that's important because if I had sons, like, oh, he's only involved because he wants him to be the next LeBron James, which, you know, so there's that. But granted, both of my girls do play basketball and they're both pretty good, but that's a different story. But I, I look at that and they look at me and they're like, hey, this guy is actually a good guy. He likes doing hair. He's a black guy. He talks about what it's like. So one of two things happens with the cognitive dissonance. Either you hold on to your preconceived belief, like, oh, well, he's a fraud. He's just someone trying to, he's gaming the system. He's a piece of crap, you know, whatever. He's, or it's like, wow, I'm going to let go of that preconceived belief that I had about black men and black dads. And I am so thankful that this guy has opened me up to a whole new world. And those people are incredibly faithful followers because when you change someone's paradigm in a positive way, they are attached to you for, and so thankful to you for that. So I've done a good job in that regard as the whole dad thing. And now I'm trying to help them with anti-racism and help take their blinders off of like a lot of the microaggressions and nonsense that they say about black people and that's pretty darn exhausting but i'm still here <laughs> i'm still here trying to put in that work what do you think or feel when you see someone who especially in the media maybe somebody being you know interviewed for for the news outside of a you know maybe there's a building on fire or something but somebody who contributes to the stereotype what what do you think or feel? Oh, oh, it's so awful. It's like whenever I see something or I hear something about it and like, oh, yeah, do you see someone torched a building? And then like first question I ask, like, and I'm like, is it black? Is the person black? Like, yeah, the black person. It's like, ah, uh, it's frustrating. However, the, the, it's important to know that the major, overwhelming majority of these cases or these of these um, not cases of these protests are peaceful. I read something online that said ninety three percent of these of these protests are peaceful. But for some reason, we're held to the standard where we are defined by our worst people, the people who are doing the looting and the in the you know robbing and destruction whereas the police who do this they're not judged by their worst offenders it's like oh just a lone wolf type of a thing and yeah. you know blue lives matter and all this garbage blue lives aren't a thing not a thing unless you're talking about the smurfs but um because you're it's a job so there's that. You know, but, and, and, and to that, yeah. I would also add that there isn't, there is not an epidemic of policemen being killed. 
you know, that, no, that if, if, if that were the case, then yeah. Uh, you know, maybe there, there would be, uh, uh, should be a discussion and some, some focus on that. What can we do to protect policemen, uh, better, but that's not the issue. And, you know, I had a, a, a guy that I went to college with post on Facebook, do the old trope of, but what about all the black people killing black people? What about the gang members? And, and I said to him, we're not paying the black gang members to protect us. <laughs> that's that's the issue. Well, to that point, there's there's more to that too. It's like the whole black on black crime thing. It's not a thing because we live in a country that's segregated. We live in a place where black people live amongst black people and white people live amongst white people. And yes, 90% of black murders happen at the hands of black people. There's no question of that. But 84% of white murders happen at the hands of white people. People, we don't go across racial lines or go into different neighborhoods. We kill and we commit crimes in our neighborhoods. We do it where we're at. We don't travel, you know, unless you're Kyle Rittenhouse, you don't travel state lines to, to commit crimes. You go where you're at. So because of that, there's no such thing as black on black crime. And the thing about it is that when black people kill other black people or white people kill other white people, guess what happens? They get arrested. They go to jail. They are punished within the fullest extent of the law. But the issue here is that when black people are killed at the hands of law enforcement, Elijah McClain, Breonna Taylor, we see, you know, all of these situations, these people aren't being held accountable and they're hanging out, having beers, doing their thing as if it didn't happen. That's what the issue is. That's the concern. That's why we're so upset. And it's a big difference. Uh, talk, talk some more about that if you, if you would. Yeah. I mean, I think too, when we talk about this whole thing about black on black crime, we, we look at it under the, the lens of, well, black people are prone to criminality. So it makes us out to be like, we're just monsters, but it's, that's not the case. There's a, a, a situation where uh, happened recently with um, a young boy who was murdered in North Carolina. I think his name was Cannon. And there's all these hashtags like justice for Cannon, justice for Cannon. But what are you talking about? This kid, the killer, there's a manhunt. This, this killer was caught within 24 hours. He probably won't see the light of day. He'll be in prison for the rest of his life. Justice is served for this guy. So for this little boy, I mean. So, and this guy is going to go in prison forever. But we talk about when black people are killed or shot, these things aren't happening. We're not hearing about police being held to the same standard of being put away and put in prison for, and I think a lot of it too, is when we hear about people upset about the rioting and the looting and like, oh my gosh, like why, why are they just breaking up stuff? And why are they doing, why are they tearing up their neighborhoods? It's like, look, man, we've asked you nicely, We've asked for centuries for you to take us seriously, to listen to us, and 
there's a few people, a small minority, mind you, who are like, screw it. We're going to burn this place down for you to listen to us. And that's, and what's so funny about that is you, you look at the wildfires going on in California now. And I'm, you're like, whoa, this is, where's he going with this? Or you're like, you look at the wildfires going on in California right now. And when people are losing their homes. And what do people say? It's like, well, you know what? It's like, it's unfortunate that you lost your home, but you can always rebuild. The lives are what matters. The fact that you're alive and your family's alive is what matters. But then when we look at these situations where people are so upset about black lives being brutalized or taken that they break windows and burn down buildings, automatic, then it flips to where property matters more than lives. Like, oh, how can they do that to that property? How can they do that to that building? Like, wait a second. One second you're saying like, hey, I'm glad that you made it out alive and things can be rebuilt, but you're saying that, oh, these poor businesses can't be rebuilt. You know, these lives don't matter. It's like, it's so incredibly frustrating to see the double standard and how people don't really care about lives, black lives. And I, I, I it just, it's so exhausting for people of color to have to explain why our lives matter. Are, are there any moments or movements that are giving you hope? Uh, has there any been anything that you've seen in the last couple of years that has made you feel like, well, you know, at least that's moving in the right direction? Yeah, no doubt. Kids. It's the kids. It's the kids. The kids get it. And the younger generation truly, truly are going to be the ones to save us from this mess. I believe that wholeheartedly. They are so much more tolerant, so much more accepting, so much more intelligent than we give them credit for. They, they get it. They get it. And they want to see this world improve. And because of social media now, and because people can get their thoughts out into the world within a millisecond, it, of course, there's lots of noise out there because of it, but there's lots of activists who now don't require money or resources to get their thoughts and feelings out there to create a movement. And again, that sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative, but I'm seeing more positive actions around that with the kids than I've seen before. And, and it's just a beautiful thing to see how much kids are really stepping up to the challenge to make the world a better place in that regard. Uh, you have struggled with depression and suicidal ideation. Are, are you comfortable talking about that? Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of times, I think really what happened was back in the day, I just never felt like I was good enough. No matter what, and that has nothing to do with my upbringing. Great parents, mom and dad are phenomenal. Great brothers that I lived with or, or lived with back in the day. So it was never anything about my upbringing. It was just a, the product of my environment. 
being one of the few black dots in a sea of whiteness, I never felt as if I was good enough. Like I would do my best. I would be positive. I would be smiling all the time. I would do whatever I could do. But at the end of the day, it was my skin color that was the issue. And my skin color was something that I could not change or control. And I felt to the point where I was like, well, if I can't control it, I start, I started to hate it. I like I hate the fact that just because I'm this skin color, people won't won't like me. I never wanted to be white. There's not it's not that. I just wanted people to like me and just for just get a chance to know me. And then I was like, if you just get to know me, you like me. But it never got to that point. And then finally, I was like, you know, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe this is not something that I, this is, maybe I'd be better off not being here. And then I looked into, you know, finding ways to take my own life. And thankfully, I didn't do that. And now I talk about mental health a lot because sadly, men don't talk about this often, as you know, but also men of color especially don't talk about this because of the stigma around being soft or, you know, when it comes to this. So I try to be that person and be like, look, we should talk about this. It is okay to talk about this. And it's normal to be struggling because the one thing that men, I mean, people of color have in common right now is all of our mental health are taking a dive right now because of what's happening in, in the news cycle. And with this being Suicide Prevention Month, it's like, how many people of color are on the brink right now because of everything from the Rona to racism everywhere to, you know, financial struggles, homeschooling their kids if they have them. Like, it's just, it's so much to bear. And, and also, if you have a job, you're trying to, like, maintain your job responsibilities as well it's a lot for people so especially men of color and because we're expected to be strong and all that stuff but oftentimes we're not we're really struggling any other things that you would uh, like to share with the listeners or me yeah I, I think the the really the last thing i was thinking about that i just wanted to share is that if you, the, the most important thing that you can do for yourself is get help if you feel like you're struggling, because there's so many people in this world who need you and love you. And quite frankly, when you're suffering from depression, you just think of all the negative stuff like, oh, I'm not liked, people don't care about me, blah, 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 blah. But I'm a burden. That's the most common one. The people that attempt suicide, that is the, the one thing that they all share in common is they feel like a burden. That's exactly it. And I felt that way too. Like, I don't want to burden people. I'd be better off. People would be better off if I wasn't around. And all of that is nonsense. It's nonsense. So my thing is, please, it does not make you soft or weak to get help. I would not be here right now if I did not get help. So um, 
I'm very thankful for that. But I feel like there's a lot of men out there who, especially men of color, who are struggling right now because of what's happening in 2020, especially around racism and the pandemic. So please, please, please get help if you need it. Don't be ashamed. And there's so many people who love and depend on you. Uh, you have a podcast that's called Just Stick to Parenting. You're still doing that, correct? I am. I'm, a, I'm on hiatus right now because I'm preparing for a TED Talk, my very first TED Talk. Nice. Which is coming. Yeah, so that's coming up at the end of September. So I am preparing for that. So there's no new episodes of that right now as I prep for the talk. Is the, is the prep excited. for the talk stressing you out? Yeah, very much so. <laughs> yeah, talk talk about but, that. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's I've always wanted to do a TED talk, and what's interesting is like back in the day when I was younger, uh, eight, six, seven, eight, nine, I had a really bad stuttering problem, speech impediment, and it was to the point where I. Like could 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 couldn't get a word out. Sort of, it was like that, like machine gun stuttering. And I, if someone told me that I would be speaking for a living and that I would be doing a TED talk, I would think that they're nuts. And it just comes down to a function of hard work and belief in oneself. But really, what it comes down to, as far as the nerves are concerned, is that sometimes when I get really nervous, that whole six, seven, eight, nine-year-old stuttering kid comes back mm. to life. Like he's buried. He's, he hasn't gone away. Right. Sometimes he pops up. So the one thing that I do is just, I over-prepare. I prepare, 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 and then I prepare even more. And the one thing that gets the nerves to go away is preparation. So when I'm prepared and I feel like I know my subject matter and I'm talking about it in a way that I feel like comfortable and confident in, then usually the stuttering goes away. But yeah, it's still, still a big speech. It's a TED Talk. Nice. So I want to make sure that I do a good job. One of the things that I've learned doing stand-up for many years is just be honest about what's going on. So if, if you know, a, a piece of advice, if it did come up during your TED Talk, would be to say, you know, I, this is something that I had as a kid and it's gone away, but here, here it is now because I'm nervous and I want to do well. And I found that when you address the elephant in the room, everybody can relax. When, when there's an That's elephant exactly. in the room, um, acknowledge it acknowledge it and uh because people want you to to do well they want to root for you um and yeah that's one of the things that i learned because oh man i had some shows where i would just ignore something you know maybe i would ignore the fact that i that uh i wasn't doing as well as the comedian who was on before me and yet i was the headliner and i i found that if i said wow you know you you guys seem to like the guy before me a little more than me. And this is a little uncomfortable and that would get a laugh. And somehow that would, that would open them up uh, a little bit, but I don't know that the thought just crossed uh, my mind. So I thought I'd 
I, I agree with that, that with I, you. I agree with a hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You absolutely. Can, ne- can never go wrong with, uh, with vulnerability. Well, I suppose sometimes never. you can go wrong with it, but it's, it, for me, it has been a life-saving, uh, tool. Uh, because it allows people to join my team rather than me just sitting, isolating, and fearing that I'm not as good as as you know others, which is such a draining, toxic uh, thought to let bounce around your head. Absolutely, completely, hundred percent agree with that. This has been so much fun. Th- I thanks, man. Great. I, I, I appreciate it. I really enjoyed our uh, our conversation. Um, Dwayne, I, I appreciate it. Uh, people can find out more about you at your website, which is uh, com, And they can uh, especially yep. find out more about the Anti-Racism Fight Club. Uh, thanks a lot, man. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me and take care of yourself. Stay safe out there. Wear a mask. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, buddy. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. I I really enjoyed talking to him, but I can't wait till we can do uh, more in-person interviews. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by, and if you guys have never filled out surveys, please uh, go do that. It's a great way to help the show that doesn't cost you anything. And... Um, we might read your survey on air. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Occam's Mustache. Am I pronouncing that right? O-C-C-A-M. Occam's Mustache. I hate when people make me feel stupid. I know it's some, it's some literary reference. I have no idea what the, what the hell he's talking about. He identifies as bisexual. He's in his 40s. 
Um, he's never been sexually abused. Uh, he's never been physically abused. He's not sure if he's been emotionally abused. He writes, unless well-intentioned religious shaming and indoctrination counts as emotional abuse. Yes, that does count as emotional abuse. And that's not to throw the people who did it under the bus and, and you know, uh, say that they're terrible people. It's, it's about giving weight to what happened to you so that you can, you can process it and, and help reset the filter you, you view reality through. Because it's like when we don't give weight to the traumas that happen to us, we are viewing our life through a warped prism until we go back and reset that thing. Because it affects everything. It affects the trauma, affects the way we view ourselves, the world, our past, present, future. Darkest thoughts, skip, question mark. Darkest secrets, I'm a late 40s, nerdy, shy, married guy with introversion slash social anxiety and such a narrow band of specific and esoteric interests that I have few friends and even fewer close friends. In my mid-30s, I came to realize that I was sexually interested in men. Uh, and in parentheses, the line in your intro, I was very interested in dicks, strikes a chord. That was from, I think, the first uh, interview with, um, oh God, who was that? I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on her name right now. She does so sad today. Uh, thinking back, that, quote, interest in dicks was always there, but unexplored and not really considered an option, maybe a secret private fetish at most, although I never really was interested in male porn, even after the internet. Eventually, fairly recently, I came to be comfortable thinking of myself as bi, but still just secretly. My current struggle is whether I should tell my wife and what good it would do if it would just be selfishly relieving myself of a burden by putting it onto her, etc. In my fantasy, telling her would result in me getting to explore it. Realistically, it would result in a simple no or hell to the fuck no, never to be talked about again, leaving me to always wonder if she respects me or if she is riddled with anxiety over the day I will leave her or for me to have to be the one to end the marriage if I ever want to, quote, see what it's like to be quote, free to sin in her mind. I also struggle with the constant desire to act out sexually, to go down this path without telling anyone. On some level, it seems less risky than saying it to her out loud. The idea that she would be cool with me, quote, getting to explore that side of myself without having to pay the price of first losing my marriage slash destroying the status quo is a pipe dream fantasy. The status quo, though, is something that has very little fulfillment for me, sexually or emotionally. But it also includes a house and savings and a family and a career that would all be put up for reconsideration should this come out. This dissatisfaction and trapped in the sexual status quo feeling has always hung over me and kind of added a gray filter to all of the other things that were supposed to bring me joy in life. I waver between thinking that I should be free to be me, to find my new, my true self, etc., 
and thinking that this is just lust, no different than if I were tempted to cheat on her with women, which I'm not really tempted to do in practical terms, but would pursue under circumstances where I had permission, i.e. if it were not cheating. Also something I should not do as well as should not ever mention to her or suggest. It was a bit of a, 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 of a run-on sentence. Um, I probably didn't read that correctly, so hopefully I, I haven't lost you. Continuing, but every day I feel like I'm getting closer to break either to tell her and be made to regret it forever or to start a secret double life and be riddled with guilt and anxiety over getting caught. Uh, What best describes the environment you were raised in? Oh, I didn't read this. Normally I read this previously. Uh, He writes slightly dysfunctional. Um, Again, religion, weird boundaries by today's standards, but totally normal within the all-loving, all-forgiving hippie Christian milieu milieu of the 70s. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, brother, sister, incest, porn. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Uh, I would have to come back to this one. I get a lump in my throat and tears in my eyes trying to think of things to put here, which I will have to investigate. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want to be Brene Brown vulnerable with my wife. But whenever I dip a toe in that pool, she goes off on me in a very hurtful, reactionary way anger, name-calling, shaming, that teaches me to just keep my mouth shut and stuff it down, which was not as easy as it was when I drank. I'm so glad that you put that down. First of all, I'm sorry that that is the environment that you find yourself in when you want to open up, because that is, to me, of more importance than any of the other stuff that that, that you've written in this survey. That is, the to me, the thing that needs the most immediate attention. Um, I think all of that other stuff that, that, that you've written about is definitely important stuff to investigate, talk to a therapist about, possibly talk to your wife about, but this, not feeling emotionally safe with the person who's supposed to be your teammate, that is not good. That is not good. And you deserve to feel safe in your marriage. And yeah, it gets complicated when the prospect of a divorce would mean splitting your shit or kids having a divorced household. I'm glad I'm not in the position where I have to make the decision about getting a divorce with kids involved. Fortunately, when I got divorced, uh, we did not have kids. But it's, it is fucking hard when you find yourself in a long-time relationship that's not working anymore and you realize that you, you want something different or the other person wants something different. It's, it sucks. It sucks. Have you shared these things with others? Just with my therapist. She's very supportive of my inner monologue, which feels good. It's a little bit of a steam vent, but not enough to cause things to change unless I change them. Also, her being a half-generation younger than me and steeped in clinical therapeutic mindset, it sometimes feels like she's just a little bit in the dark on the mindsets of old-school, uptight people. I'm constantly explaining an actual harm that could come from what harm could come from just opening up to my wife. 
which she then treats like, oh, you have a point. Sometimes I wonder if I'm being catfished by an advanced AI bot. Haha, ha. it's online therapy. She's great, though. I jest. Um, I think I think something to look at there is what is actual literal harm that will degrade the rest of your life and what is short-term emotional discomfort. And I think it's easy to conflate the two and to avoid the short-term emotional discomfort because we view it as a long-term, you know, missile launch into into our ribs that's going to forever hobble us when in reality sometimes it can actually be something that strengthens us if we make the decision to advocate for ourselves and say, you know, I've rethought what my bottom line needs are in this relationship. And this is not selfish for me to ask to be talked to in a tone of voice that's respectful for feelings that I have inside me that I have no control over, to be not sneered at and not vilified. I mean, how can you be intimate with someone if you fear that the authentic you is going to be rejected by that person? That to me is that's not a partnership. You know, that's that's roommates. How do you feel after writing these things down? Giddy. I've been composing this in my head for years, probably. The draft was twice as long. That was great. Thank you. I, I really... Uh, I'm really glad you took the time to share that. Not only for yourself, but for the, for the podcast that we got to take a peek into what you're going through because I think a lot of people, a lot of people can relate to that feeling of being in a marriage that is just everything's being swept under the rug and and you're just counting days. You're just getting by and it's just gray. It just feels gray. This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves uh, the music will never be loud enough. Um, right. I love my cat. I found him begging for food outside my door one night at midnight as I was coming home from a job I hated while I was the most depressed I've ever been. We've been best friends for four years now. Oh, if you hear this, send me a picture of you too. I'd like to see that just because I don't believe you. Uh, I love it when I'm listening to a song in a language I've been studying and a line I've heard a thousand times before suddenly clicks and goes from being a meaningless string of sounds to visions in my brain. Oh, that is such a great one. This one's really super simple. I love birds. They're everywhere and they are fascinating. I have a lot of birds in my backyard and I was listening to them the other morning and I thought... You know, it's so easy to just dismiss what they're, the noises that they're making and assume that they're not communicating anything of depth or importance to each other. And so, and the squirrels make a lot of noise too. And so just for like 10 minutes, I was laying in bed, just imagining what it is that they're all saying to each other. And I was just imagining, you know, one of them saying, man, what a, what a great day out. Look at all this food that we that we have or what's going on in that other yard should I come over there now 
You want me to wait here for you? And I should mention I was masturbating. See, I couldn't let that moment of vulnerability just sit there. I had to. I was so afraid that I came across as cheesy and new agey. But, uh, yeah. Uh, here's another one they have. I love hearing music in the distance. Anytime I'm walking from my car to my apartment and I see an open window with music, any kind, pouring out of it, I can't help but smile and think about how deep down everybody is the same. Oh, those are great. Thank you for those. This is uh, a shame and secret survey. This was one of the ones I told you about that uh, touches on borderline personality disorder. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Latte Macchiato Princess. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, was raised in what she calls a pretty dysfunctional environment. I would say totally chaotic. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, and if this is the stuff that you're talking about, it absolutely counts uh, if social workers were aware of what was happening to you when it was happening uh, your mother would have been removed from the house or you would have been removed from the house um, but authorities would have definitely gotten involved um, she writes I am almost certain that it doesn't count as sexual abuse, but I still want to get this off my chest. My mother has no respect for boundaries. When I lived with my parents, my mom would walk into my room to bring laundry. She would come to my room how and whenever she wanted. Me being fully naked and changing clothes wasn't a problem for her. Every time I said, Mom, please knock before you come in. I'm naked right now, as you can see. I'd cover my private parts with my hands, and she would get mad every time. She would say, I'm your mother, and it's not normal. You've got nothing to hide. I'm your mother, and it's normal. You've got nothing to hide, right? Your mom seeing you naked is, is not weird, but your reaction to it is. And that is classic gaslighting that your mom did to you. That is a form of sexual abuse, invading someone's privacy, not listening to them set boundaries, um, when I took showers, I would lock the door, obviously. My mom would get a small but sharp kitchen knife and use that to switch the lock to her opposite side from outside the door, to the opposite side from outside the door. She would come into the bathroom because she felt it was urgent to wash her hands and take all the clean laundry. Sadly, I cannot tell you how many times I have seen this pattern and, um, I actually started a, a private support group for people who grew up with mothers like this. Um, so there, there is, if you're, if you're interested and you want to know more about it, um, email me and, and share some of your story with me and I can, I can tell you more about it. Um, my mom would always get mad. Um, she would see me totally naked as I was trying to take a shower in private. I wasn't allowed to have a lock on my bedroom door. My mom would always get mad at the idea. I should not have anything to hide from her, and that includes my naked body. And that is another sign that your your parent is a narcissist if they can't see where they end and you begin. If they, if they think just because you came out of their body that they they have a right to know and see everything about you. Um, that's 
super fucked up. Every time I covered my tits and yelled at her to go away, she would get really mad because as her daughter, I shouldn't have boundaries or anything to hide. My mom would would um, say that to me too when I would try to cover up. She would say, she would make me feel bad. She would say, I, I'm your mother. It's nothing I haven't seen before. You know, I saw your thing before you ever did. And, and I would buy into it and think, yeah, I'm, you know, I am a bad son for being worried about my mom seeing me naked. Uh, she's been both physically and emotionally abused. Uh, here's a list of things my mother said to me. Your brothers should hate you for being such a whore. I was crying in bed because my boyfriend broke up with me, nothing else. Looking at you, I would have never thought you would do so many great things and succeed. You're not as dumb as you look sometimes. Take off that skirt. I can see your camel toe, and you don't want your uncles to see the shape of your vagina. Your dad doesn't want uncles and aunts to know the shape of the vagina mommy has. We have the same shape, and so if they can see yours, they will know what mine looks like. No more short, short skirts for you. I was about eight when she said this. Don't lay on the couch like a whore when your dad or brothers walk in. Have some respect and sit like a lady. What are you doing naked? I would be naked and probably changing clothes in the privacy of my own bedroom. What if your brother or dad walks in? Do you ever think of that? Put some clothes on and don't be disrespectful. Let me remind you that I was not allowed to have a bedroom lock. And, oh, that's in her voice. Let me remind you that I was not allowed to have a bedroom lock. And sadly, I wasn't allowed to be naked for too long in my own bedroom because my brother or dad could walk in and see that and that would be totally disrespectful towards them. Um, are you sleeping with a t-shirt and just underwear? Who taught you that that's normal? It's not normal. Put some clothes on. Uh, there was a heated argument between me and my mother. This happened after she kicked me with her feet while I was sitting next to her. We had visitors, and we were just having a good time with lots of talking. I remember my mom talking and me not agreeing with something she said. She kicked me with her feet so hard and abruptly. It was her physical way to tell me to shut the fuck up and to not be disrespectful. Yes, she has kicked and slapped me in front of my lovely family and family friends many times. I went to the kitchen, and she followed me. I told her that she makes me wish I was dead. She told me she wished I was dead, too. I followed by saying, I hope I don't wake up tomorrow, and she replied with, I really hope you don't wake up tomorrow, too. It, it would be the best thing to happen to me. She did this silently and then walked from the kitchen back into the living room. She was being the lovely host and having lovely chats with her friends and family. I was still standing in the kitchen. It was dark there. I went to my room and remember laying down. The next day was going to be my first day as an intern at an important place. My mom knew that. As I felt the comfort of my pillow, I started silently crying. It wasn't the first time my mom wished I was dead. I am amazed by the fact that I did not take my own life at that point. My mom always told me I wasn't the daughter she wished for. Any positive experiences with the abuser? She's my mom. I still love her in a damaged way. What are your deepest, darkest thoughts? I want to make a contract for all my loved ones and have them sign it. I want to have their blessing on a contract so I can kill myself and not leave question marks behind. 
I want to plan my death and have my loved ones agree so that I can spend my last days with all of them. Finally, when I take my life, I take it with ease because not only I, but my loved ones are okay with it. Darkest Secrets. When I was eight years old, I got pushed into a corner by two 16-year-olds. They held a knife to my neck very forcefully. The blade was cold, but I didn't show any fear. They threatened to kill me because I told their younger sister to shut up. Saying shut up as an eight-year-old ended up in a knife against my neck. I don't remember what happened after that. During that time, I was already automatically dissociating. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Just being used and abused. I want to feel like I'm worth nothing. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to say to my parents, Mom, Dad, I've been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and ADD. I go to very intense therapy. I just started taking Prozac for my depression. It was no fun wanting to die every day for months. Also, I've been addicted to several things right under your noses. I can't tell my parents any of the above. They don't take me or the diagnosis seriously. They already made fun of my scars from self-harm. My parents would think that I'm just making everything up for attention. I live on my own now, luckily. My parents are proud of all I achieve, but don't know I've been an on-and-off addict. They don't know their daughter. They are proud of her achievements, and that's about it. I've once made the mistake of sharing my suicidal thoughts with my oldest brother. He ignored me for a whole month after that. I finally broke down and asked him why he was ignoring me for so long. He said he was really mad about me wanting to die. He ignored me because I hurt his feelings by being suicidal. Life is so beautiful. What, if anything, do you wish for? I know it's a bit too much, but since I can't commit suicide because I love some people too much and don't want to destroy their lives, I wish for a car to hit me or for a doctor to tell me it's cancer and it's too late to do something about it. That way, I can die without feeling responsible. I wouldn't be blamed for the grief. Have you shared these things with others? No. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel afraid. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? No. So many things jump out to me reading this. First of all, I just send in your love and good vibes because you're clearly in a lot of pain and you really feel trapped in your life. And, you know, one of the things I, I wish for people who are in lives where they feel trapped is that they look at all of the things that they say this is out of the question and question it. Cutting toxic people out of your life. Why does it have to be out of the question? Because you don't have to end the life that you have. You can end parts of your life and learn a new way of living and maybe get to experience those things that you thought would never be possible for you. But if we say, no, I can't, you know, quote unquote, turn my back on family, then we get the results of that decision, which is, I don't know, a life unlived. Um, I don't know, this shit's so complicated, but it's sending sending you love and good vibes. And thank you for going so deep on uh, on that one this is stuff a lot of people don't talk about or don't understand especially the 
the um, covert incest that you experience from your from your mom. That shit fucks you up every bit as much as somebody actually touching you because the message is the same in both circumstances. You don't matter. You are my thing. I don't see you. I only see what I want to see. And I experienced that. And I had to cut my mom out of my life. I feel like I've been talking about that too much lately, but... This is the other survey that touches on borderline personality disorder that I wanted to read. And this is by a woman um, who refers to herself as Bay Blade. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, was raised in a uh, totally dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, No. She's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, and about the emotional abuse, she writes, I was in pain at the age of 14, crawling up on the sofa and crying. My mom looked me dead in the eyes and said, you're only pretending to be in pain so you can get attention and be free from doing any chores. I told her that wasn't true. I said, mom, I'm really in pain. She yelled. She yelled that I was a liar. The following days were painful. I couldn't walk or eat. I was laying in bed with just underwear and a t-shirt, so the fresh-cut scars on my legs were no secret anymore. I couldn't have cared less about the scars and my parents finding out because my pain took me away from everyday life. Nothing mattered because there was that pain and I knew it wasn't right. After a few days of laying in bed with all that pain, my mom still refused to check up on me. She was still convinced that I was faking it, and on top of that, shamed me for the scars on my legs. She told me, well, look at you. You're a good drawer after all. Look at your legs. Two days later, I woke up in the hospital. I was in a happy place because of the morphine. Long story short, I had one of my ovaries removed because it got tangled with a cyst around it. The doctors had to remove one of my ovaries and told my parents how crucial it had been if we were not on time. So there I am in my bed. I can still feel the morphine and the sweet taste of apple juice in my mouth because that's all I'm allowed to drink. My mom strokes my hair. With teary eyes, she whispered, you know, I had lost all love for you. You're lucky that you've had this surgery because it made me realize that I still love you. Before the surgery, I just didn't love you anymore. Her approval is like the charger for my battery. I I remember telling my parents I wanted to hang myself once. My dad offered me to buy the rope and my mom laughed. They were having a blast and joking around about buying a rope for me to use. I remember my mom telling me I'm the reason she lives for. I also remember her wishing I were never born. I mean, if that's not the definition of gaslighting, you're worth everything and you're worth nothing. As a kid, I was carrying a weight on my shoulders. My mom told me that if she were to have cancer, then I'd be the one to blame. My eight-year-old self thought thought that was pretty reasonable. Making mommy sad was not an option for me. I was not going to make her sick. My mom loves me, and I love her. I remember one time she cried in my room. She cried as she was cleaning out my closet. She saw the mess and said, You were experiencing tornadoes of feelings, and I was too blind to see that. She hugged me and cried. I'm sorry for not seeing how much pain you're in. 
You must have felt so alone. Uh, she went to smoke a cigarette, and I sat beside her. She stared in the dark distance and said, I have been a horrible mother. I wanted to say, no, Mom, you're not, but my lips refused to work with me. I couldn't get myself to say it. I decided to enjoy this moment, her pity and her love. Fuck. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by two things as I'm reading that is, is how sorry I feel for you in those moments and how sorry I feel for your mom. And some people will probably hate that I say that, but somebody doesn't get to be like your mom is because they want to be that way. You know, your mom was probably born a healthy, happy kid into a super fucked up environment and her brain had to develop ways to protect her and her children wound up becoming the brunt of those coping tools of, of whether it's her sickness or her tools, whatever it is, but... Um, your mom deserves compassion as well, but that doesn't mean the parents who do that should, shouldn't get consequences and shouldn't possibly have children taken away from them. But I don't believe that people like your mom are evil or bad. I, just, I see them as sick. And the important question is, are they willing to admit that there's a problem? And are they willing to get help and try to do what's necessary to become a safer person for those around them. That, that to me, is the, the linchpin that all the questions should lead to. Do you want to get better? You're sorry you treated me that way? Okay, what are you going to do to improve that? Because there, there's a chance that people like your mom do want to get better. You know, sadly with my mom, her attempts, I think, to change were half-hearted at best, and they were not consistent, and I just got tired of promises being broken about boundaries being respected, and it just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My mom is a complex woman. She cares about me deeply in her own way. and She had a very tough childhood. I think she had borderline personality disorder. I know she's the reason I have borderline personality disorder, but I love her and sometimes I wish I could hate her. Boy, that's such a profound statement. I love her and I wish I could hate her. It's incredible the depth of that bond between a child and a parent, how badly that child wants the truth to not be the truth, that that, that that parent is not safe. The excuses that we will make for the unsafe parent, blame ourselves or the situations or make excuses for them. And, you know, all parents are going to make mistakes, but it's the way they clean their mistakes up that shows their, their character. And, you know, borderline personality disorder... I, I don't know 
enough about it that I could ever say, hey, you know, I'm going to speak expertly about this. But from what I've read and the uh, videos that I've watched, there's a great one by uh, Dr. Marsha Linehan, who is uh, considered probably the foremost expert on it. She uh, identifies as having borderline personality disorder, and she uh, was the one who came up with a modality of therapy for, for it called dialectical behavior uh, therapy. And she has a video uh, on YouTube about borderline personality disorder, and, and I highly recommend watching it to everybody. Even if you're interested in it or not, it will help you understand the degree uh, to which some people experience the intensities of life. Um, but borderline personality disorder is is one of those personality disorders where it's just very easy for people to write the sufferer off as a lunatic, um, you know, etc., etc., that there's no humanity in them. And in reality, inside that person with borderline personality disorder is a terrified, terrified child whose biggest fear is abandonment and who feels emotions. On a scale from 1 to 10, they experienced emotions as a 20. And um, I knew none of that stuff before I started doing the podcast. And it's from surveys like yours and videos like Dr. Linehan's that that I've been able to educate myself a little bit a little bit more um, continuing darkest thoughts I feel like a weight will fall off my shoulders once my mom passes away I feel like I will be able to breathe but I would be so lost without her I can't even think about it She's the architect of my destruction, and I don't know what to do without her. Another deep, dark thought is to chain and torture people who have hurt me really bad. Teachers who humiliated me in front of the class. Teachers telling me I shouldn't bother because I, was gonna, because I probably was not going to make it. I want to hurt the people I trusted enough to tell them about my borderline personality disorder. I'm high-functioning and I'm a social worker. My disorder is not visible. I want to hurt the people that said, oh no, of course, I won't judge you or treat you different now. I'm an honest person, but my honesty has never worked in my favor. That being said, I will never stop being honest and I will never actually torture someone. I do have a deep desire, but the pain and the disappointment comes from within me. That was one of the other things I wanted to say was uh, dialectical behavior therapy has um, been proven to be an extremely effective way for people uh, that have borderline personality disorder to manage their feelings because that, from what I understand, is the most unmanageable part of it is is the feelings are so intense and she came up with ways of, you know, maybe um, throwing, uh, holding uh, ice cubes uh, can be a way sometimes to let the the intensity of the, the, the feelings go or... Um, I don't know. I'm not going to try to, to, to sum it up without knowing more about it, but um, I know it's helped a lot of people. And I guess all of this is a roundabout way of saying borderline personality disorder can absolutely be managed if the person who has it is is willing to do the work, much like alcoholism or drug addiction. It, it can be manageable. I mean, one of my guests um, a while back uh, has, has uh, schizophrenia, and she is a law professor, Dr. Ellen Sachs. She wrote a book called The Center Cannot Hold, and she is a high-functioning um, 
person living with schizophrenia. And for a lot of people, schizophrenia, um, they find themselves out on the street. They find themselves unemployable, homeless, completely out of touch with the rest of the world. But she decided to accept that this was something that she had. And she said, okay, I want to have a life. I will do what it takes to manage this. And so she takes meds and all the other stuff that some people have to do when when they've been cursed with an affliction. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I like being dominated a lot. It really turns me on to be treated like I'm worth absolutely nothing. Hearing degrading words and being treated like it's sexually, like I'm worth nothing, turns me on the most. I like being choked and slapped and squeezed blue and want to be treated like I'm the most hated and worthless person walking on this earth. And what a great example that is of how our sexual fantasies are often related to the very thing in life that causes us the most pain or anxiety. You know, just more proof that our our, our brains sometimes sexualize trauma or anxiety. And if there's nothing nothing wrong morally with what turns us on, it's it's what we do with it, how we express it. And and most importantly, how we view ourselves around it, you know? So much energy has been wasted on the planet by people shaming themselves for what turns them on and and nobody's being hurt by what they're thinking. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I might sound like a lunatic now. My mom always wanted a daughter after giving birth to two sons. Sadly, she had a miscarriage. She had to tell her dead baby girl goodbye as she entered the world empty, no sign of life. I want to tell my sister who died at birth that I'm happy to take the fall for her. If I could communicate with her, I'd tell her she's the lucky one. I'd tell her she's not missing out. I'd tell her I envy her. I'd tell her that sometimes I get mad at her. Her death caused my very existence. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to make up and feel neutral one day instead of hearing five songs. I I wish to wake up and feel neutral one day instead of hearing five songs mashing through each other along with the critical voices in my head. I wish to go through a day without breathing like I'm in fight-or-flight mode. I want to breathe, and I want to rip off my cheekbones and to stop it from feeling so tense. I want to have a day for me. I want a day revolved around me. I hope one day I can be stable. Not happy, but stable. Happy is too much to wish for. Stable is what I want. Have you shared these things with others? I go to mentalization-based therapy and talk with my friends about most of this stuff. I have a pretty neat support system. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel the same. Only difference is that Paul will read it and I will never hear and I will hear him read it and that will give me joy instead of the usual suffering. Well, I'm glad you feel that way and I hope you do hear me read this if that uh, if that helps you. Um anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? People with borderline personality disorder, I can relate to you all and I also can't relate to any of you. 
If you share your diagnosis with someone and they react in a way that's hurtful, please know that it's not your fault. You've been open and honest. The way people deal with it is not your problem. We got Gracie piping in there. Got all the windows shut so she's not happy. Um, and then I want to finish with some loves. This is filled out by uh, somebody who calls themselves silently struggling, but at least I have z quill. They write, I love the thin tinfoil wrapping that hot dogs come in at ball games. Oh, I love that one. It's so good. And the smell when you open it up. Even though hot dogs are <laughs> objectively not a good thing when you think about everything that's in them and the way they're made and how they, but oh, I love that. I love a good ballpark hot dog. And how calories at events or on vacation feel like they don't count, as if they've just become a part of the experience and aren't real. I love when you first open the door at a summer rental house that's been sitting for a few hours since the last renters left and the AC has been off and the windows are closed and it smells of heat and hardwood floors and cloth furniture and area rugs. That is, And there's a slightly musty smell to it too that, that just smells like vacation. I love meeting someone that has such a strong sense of self that it glows in everything they say and do, as if everything they do and say makes exact sense to who they are. I love when a book is so good that it hurts you to leave it, and you just think, wow, how did the writer do that? Oh, that's such a great one. I love riding the two-minute... I loved riding the two-minute drive to the beach in the trunk of our SUV as a child, looking out the back window and feeling like I would never live so dangerously or break so many rules as I was then. I love the time of the morning when it's no longer night and the sun has just barely begun to come up and the whole world appears blue for only a few minutes. The air smells like trying to catch a morning flight at the airport or the bus for school. Oh, these are so good. Uh, in relation to the previous entry, I love when you get to the airport early in the morning, 2 to 3 a.m.-ish, and though the rest of the city is asleep, this strange building is hours ahead into the day. Almost all the flyers are somewhat united in the same unspoken feeling of strangeness, of being awake and living so rapidly and drinking coffee and buying chips and snow globes in what should be the middle of the night. Even though school was an overall terrible experience for me, I love how new everything is on the first day of school. New backpack and pencils and notebooks, and your bag is so light, and you see people you forgot existed over the summer, and you smell the linoleum and the painted concrete walls and those too thin brown paper towels in all the classrooms, and everyone is a bit lost and confused, and there seems to be no boundaries to who you can and cannot talk to because the setting is different from what it was the end of the last school year. Wow. That was amazing. I love a beautifully written eulogy when someone you didn't know had any writing talent encapsulates the deceased someone so well it gives you a sense of closure and you wish that you could rewind and play it all over again. I love when I can write exactly what I think. I think it's the closest form of magic to get the exact words you're thinking onto a page exactly as you thought them. Well, you certainly did that because those were some of the best loves i've i've read those were like little little movies 
little pieces of poems. Thank you for that. Thank you all for the efforts you guys put into the into the surveys. It means so much to me, and the, of course the guests that come on the podcast and. All of this is my awkward way of trying to wrap up the podcast and not really knowing what to say, but feeling like I owe it to you to do it on some type of high note that I can't think of right now. So I'm just going to keep moving my lips in the hope that something strikes me. And that thing that strikes me is the image of Herbert's butthole. <laughs> Gracie just did a little, a little box She doesn't like me mentioning the, the late Herbert's butthole. But uh, yeah, there you go. Herbert's butthole. You're not alone. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely